Ready? Born ready. Another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where to Party At. If you're listening to us on release day, happy Tuesday. All right, as always, we've got a great show for you on deck. We're going to talk about what's happening in Atlanta and across the state with a little bit of national politics uh, sprinkled in. But first, we're going to acknowledge the passing of Sam Massell. Sam Massell, if you don't know was Atlanta's first Jewish mayor and the last white mayor in Atlanta. He passed away this past Sunday morning at the age of 94. So he lived a very long, uh, fulfilling life. Sam Massell served for one term and he lost his reelection to a second term uh, to a young dynamic guy who became a household name all across Atlanta in the state and even made a national play as well. None other than Maynard Jackson, the first black mayor of Atlanta. As mayor, Sam Massell was responsible for making MARTA a reality. Uh, He and a few others bought what was then called the Atlanta Transit Company. And that was a bus only company that was owned by Georgia Power and it was basically going bankrupt And so they bought that company and turned it into what we now know today as MARTA. Went around the community with a blackboard and chalk to show the average domestic worker uh, what their weekly salary was and how much they were trans transportation was costing them and how much it would now cost them the next day because we were going to buy the existing buses and drop the fare immediately and uh, that they'd actually have money to put in their pocket. It, it would be a savings to them, not, a, not another expense. And um, that, that was uh, the truth, and it was important. So uh, we're friends, and uh, he, he brought a lot of credit and honor uh, to our state. We've had some good governors from time to time. We've had some sorry ones. Uh, they, the, uh, I'll tell you uh, an anecdote about uh, the media one time uh, where uh, the legislature had given me the power to uh, put on this sales tax for murder that I was mentioning earlier, which was very unusual. And I wanted to say thank you. I, there'd always been frictions between state government and the city of Atlanta's government, always. and. Uh, I said, I, you know, they've done a wonderful thing for us. I want to say thank you. And the press didn't buy that. They weren't interested in that at all. At my Monday morning news conference, and I'd say, let's, let's thank this. And no, they wouldn't. So, um, so I forced it on them. I, I, I planned, I called a news conference on the front lawn of City Hall facing the state capitol. During the night, I had a f- flatbed truck drawn in there with a full-size billboard on it covered with sheets. We unveiled it and said, thank you, Georgia lawmakers. And then we dug a hole in the ground. We said, if there's ever been a friction between us, we're going to bury the hatchet. And we put the hatchet in there. And then we sent all the secretaries from City Hall and 
in pink hot pants. You couldn't do that today, but over to the <laughs> state capitol with the little key to the city for every member of the House and the Senate. And then we sent over proclamations thanking them for, for their help and inviting them over for peanuts because Carter was there and chicken because Maddox was there as lieutenant governor and Coca-Cola because everybody's in Atlanta, you know. And uh, they came over for that and that forced the, the newspaper's front page. It had a, had a, must have been an eight column picture of that thank you Georgia lawmakers. And so sometimes you have to push, you know. Let's go back to 1969. Hot pink pants. Yeah, definitely couldn't do that today, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> but that... That interview uh, he gave when he was, I think, 70 years old, he said, um, and you could tell then just how sharp he was. Uh, Macell appointed the first woman to the Atlanta City Council. He also appointed the first black department heads. Um, and, you know, after he left the mayor's office, he was kind of known around town as the unofficial mayor of Buckhead. Not to be clear, he was not for Buckhead cityhood. Uh, but he was kind of known as the person uh, in Buckhead. He led and started the Buckhead Coalition. And, you know, even up until last year's mayoral race, if you were a candidate who was running for citywide office or, or any seat that touched Buckhead, you had to go to Sam and kiss the ring, so to speak. You had to make sure that he knew you were running and he could gauge what kind of character, what kind of candidate uh, you would be. So, um you know, at the same time, it's just kind of an interesting thing, and I'll mention this later in the show, we had uh, a former mayor, Sam, uh, Andy Young, celebrating his 90th birthday, and then the next day we had former mayor Sam Assel passing away at 94. And other sort of transportation-related news, uh, the folks over at the Clayton Crescent reported that Senator Raphael Warnock successfully pushed for $5 million in federal funds to build a MARTA bus maintenance facility in Forest Park. Now, why is this a big deal? MARTA has bus maintenance facilities in Fulton and DeKalb counties. The one that most of you probably are aware of is called the Laredo Garage, and that's right across from the DeKalb Farmer's Market. So having one, having one of these bus facilities in Clayton County is a big deal because it's going to improve operations there. There are a number of routes that serve Clayton County and South Fulton, uh, so they'll be using this garage for that. Uh, that's about 31 bus routes and 700 jobs that will be in Clayton County. This is obviously another feather in the cap for Warnock. He's got a tough re-election uh, this year. He was, re he was elected last year. Well, yeah, last year, 2020, and then the runoff in 2021. And then immediately he will be facing uh, more than likely Herschel Walker in, in November. Now, I know a lot of Democrats think Herschel Walker is a joke of a candidate, but I think he's got a legit shot. Uh, it's early, so we don't know exactly what's going to happen, uh, but we'll see. Why don't we switch gears and then tell you about what's happening at the state capitol? A lot, a lot is going on. Uh, this week, I think I said this wrong last week, this week is actually what's called crossover week. Um, so this is the last week where the bills have to pass one chamber in order to get to the next chamber. So one thing we you've heard us talk about before, uh, the Georgia Senate officially passed what's called the Divisive Concepts Bill. Uh, this bill passed on a party line, which is no surprise. That means that Republicans voted for it and Democrats voted against it. 
These are nine concepts that teachers cannot teach, including that the United States and Georgia are systematically racist and that no race is inherently superior or inferior to another. Now, Republicans wanted to make this happen at the collegiate level as well, meaning that you could not teach what's known as critical race theory in college, but they ended up removing that part of the bill. Um, I'm sure a number of professors in the Board of Regents uh, raised a lot of hell uh, behind the scenes on that. Um, another bill that hasn't been talked about a lot, but I think it'll be relevant to a lot of folks who are listening. Uh, so you might remember about four years ago, the state passed a law that made it illegal to be on your phone and driving at the same time, right? So this current law does not allow drivers to use their phones while they're driving, even if you're stopped and even if your car is on a mount. I know most of y'all are like, Really? Because I do that all the time. So you just better hope a state trooper doesn't see you. Um, so a Republican state senator has been pushing to kind of change this and make a bill that would make it legal to be on the phone as long as you're stopped and the phone is mounted. Now, his argument is that folks are doing it anyway. So let's just, you know, put a little bit of bumpers behind it and tell them, okay, you can do it as long as you do it in this way. But Democrats and Republicans voted the bill down. They said it was too dangerous. Uh, nationwide, distracted driving results in about 3,000 deaths per year. That doesn't even include folks who were injured in accidents. That's like an additional 400,000 people nationwide who were injured in accidents uh, because of distracted driving. So that helps you understand why this bill got shut down. Uh, and if you're someone who doesn't get how politics impacts your everyday life, this is a perfect example. This bill is a perfect example of that for you. Another bill, uh, this is called Senate Bill 613. This is being talked about as kind of a twin to the Florida don't say gay bill. You might have heard about that one. Uh, it would prohibit discussions of gender identity and sexual orientation in private school classrooms at the primary grade level. The bill also has CRT language that we just discussed previously. Um, and this version includes, again, this is private schools. The other CRT bill was around public schools. So I had never heard of this before, but uh, there's something called GOAL, G-O-A-L. So this is basically a state-sponsored uh, program that subsidizes private school tuitions for families in need. And if I'm reading correctly how this works, if you are an individual or an, or an organization, you can donate to Goal, which is a nonprofit, and then in return, you would get a state income tax credit. And then that money would go to help fund a child's uh, tuition in a private school. Now, there are 166 schools across the state that participate in this program. A lot of them are Christian schools. So some schools that Atlanta folks might recognize, Atlanta International School, Cristo Rey, that's the Jesuit high school. You might have seen them in uniforms. Galloway School, and these are all some Buckhead schools. Galloway School, Lovett, Marist, and then Woodward is one that I'm sure a lot of folks know as well. 
So here's what the bill says. No private or non-public school or program to which this chapter applies shall promote, compel, or encourage classroom discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in primary grade levels or in a manner that is not appropriate for the age and developmental stage of the student. That's the that's what the bill says. Now, I don't know if any of these private schools have issued letters to parents or if they've made any kind of response to this bill. I don't have children, but I'm going to give you an example of something that someone I know personally dealt with. This was a couple years ago. Now, this was in high school. So a couple years ago, the kid who I believe was in 10th grade at the time was in a sex ed course, um, and the teacher was a- answering questions from the students, and the teacher got kind of explicit on some of the responses to questions, things like the taste of semen, uh, which was a surprise for the 10th grader. <laughs> and so the 10th grader goes home, tells the parents like, hey, did you know, yada, yada, yada? And the parents are like, where did you hear this? And she says, oh, we talked about it in sex ed class. Uh, And the parents were very livid. Uh, They wrote a letter to the school. The school said, you know, that probably, that wasn't right. That wasn't appropriate. And they apologized. Um, So, you know, the reality is that there's going to, there are going to be questions that a child will have even, you know, even a child in high school um, that might come out of left field, um, that might be, the teacher might feel is inappropriate, or they may not know, should I answer this question or not? Um, I guess the question is, like, what is the appropriate thing to do in that situation? And I guess, really, what this bill will will definitely have them do is just um, say, you know, maybe that's a question that your parents should answer. Uh, And then they can email the parent and say, hey, your child had this question. You might want to talk about it with them when they get home. On the flip side, you know, I think some folks are concerned that what if a parent um, disciplines or shames the child for asking questions that that parent might deem as inappropriate or the parent doesn't understand how they know this or why they're asking the question? So ultimately, I mean, this requires emotional intelligence and discernment um, for all adults involved. And that's really how it should be, period. And you shouldn't have to have legislation for that. Keith, what you got? You look like you're going to ask me a question. I mean, I just (laughs) want to know, did they add money for teacher training during this whole state capital bill? Because... I remember being in school and my dad didn't know everything. So I had teachers that I could ask confidently, explain things to me. And now I'm enlightening my dad too. But I feel like those teachers were like, especially the counselors. And I heard some counselors are coming back in schools, but is there any training for emotional intelligence? Because I think you just hit the nail on the head. If you want to pass these bills, okay, but it needs to be a level of emotional intelligence and one safe space because I think the issue here is are we eradicating safe spaces because school is a safe space for a lot of kids I don't have food I come to school to eat I can't talk to my parents I come to school to talk 
I don't have brothers and sisters. I come to school to, you know, have some camaraderie. Like, it's a very safe space. And with these bills, um, that's my concern. I, I'm never tripping about what you're teaching and not teaching because I, I believe that's a parent's responsibility. But the safe space aspect of it, you know, if my child may be feeling a way or, hey, they might have some thoughts sexually that they feel like, I don't know if I can ask my dad, but then they talk to a, a responsible adult that they trust and they can give some information and then maybe that adult can come to me and say, hey, do you know your child was X, Y, Z? Then we can come together. But if the school is scared to talk about it and my child can't talk about it, they can't tell me, where does that leave the kids? You know? Yeah, and that's that's the bill. I mean, the school can't talk about it anymore. Um, and you just have to, you know, my, I mean, I grew up in a pretty conservative household, so my parents were not talking to me about certainly anything to that level of what, you know, the example I gave of the 10th grader, but there, there just were not conversations around sex growing up. Yeah. And Georgia Equality, which is a, a statewide nonprofit that does a lot of advocacy around LGBT issues, uh, they've come out against this bill. I mean, we know that um, a teenagers or young people in general, and particularly young people from minority families, um, are at risk when they have these kinds of conversations with their families. And so that's just you, to your earlier point, you do want the school to be a safe space. Now, at the same time, again, you adults need to be responsible in how they have those conversations. So that'll be, that'll be an interesting one. And, and unfortunately, a lot of what has happened in the state legislature this session, because it's an election year, are, are hot topic, you know, red meat issues for the Republican Party um, that ultimately, if it were an election year, we probably wouldn't be having conversations about it. Yeah, but I also think, too, because, yeah, you know, this is where the party at. I think uh, Republicans are pretty smart in understanding how conservative, especially black people are. Oh, no, it's definitely are. smart. So yeah. when you, even how you just broke the bill down to me, and you said, well, it's just primary. Now I'm like, well. It's not, yeah. It don't sound as bad. It doesn't sound so as bad. a Democrat doesn't need to come out so hard against it and maybe just try to have, like, some of the talking points I'm saying. Like, right. Hey, let's get school counselors. Let's increase funding for teachers to learn emotional intelligence. I agree. Right. How do you this. responsibly have these conversations? Yeah, instead of just yes. like, ah, they're being, you know, yes. they did it. It's done. We had to fight it. You know. That's called being smart. <laughs> so qualifying week was last week. So now we know who was qualified for what seats. Um, this is, these are folks who are running for state house, state senate, governor, lieutenant governor, public service commissioner, judges, all of those seats and more. Uh, the folks who pay the qualifying uh, fee, those are the folks that you're gonna see on your May ballot for the primary election. And then um, not every seat is a partisan seat. So some of those folks you'll see on the November election. A few highlights. Uh, Stacey Abrams was the only Democrat to qualify for governor. Not a surprise at all. Uh, so she will be able to spend the next couple of months raising money, hiring staff, and focusing on her get-out-the-vote efforts. Now, on the Republican side, Governor Brian Kemp and former Senator David Perdue 
they will be spending the next couple of months trying to prove who's more conservative, duking it out. Now, Purdue has had a rocky start to his campaign, and he's really hoping that his allegiance to Trump will be his saving grace. Now, Trump has planned a series of events uh, that he's going to do with his entire slate of candidates, Purdue, Herschel Walker, Jody Heiss, um, and the point of those is to convince Georgians to vote for Trump's candidates and not for people that he sees as Republicans in name only. Uh, another big race beyond the governor's race is, and there will be quite a few, but I'm just going to mention this one, uh, well, maybe two, the 6th Congressional District race. That is um, going to be a lot of fireworks on both the Republican and the Democratic primaries. And then the 10th Congressional race, that's the one that Vernon Jones is in. Remember, Vernon was going to run for governor, and then he backed out to run for the Congress 10th Congressional District and Trump has backed him in that race. Uh, let me give you guys an update on Lincoln County. So you, are, you might remember, if you were a loyal listener, a few episodes ago, I told you about a plan to shut down seven precincts and have just one voting precinct in rural Lincoln County. And reducing the precincts meant that people would have to drive that much longer just to go vote. I think we calculated it was about a 23-mile trip uh, to go from one part of the county just to the voting precinct. So imagine a 40-something mile round trip to go vote. It's pretty wild. So the elections board backed off on the plan after a bunch of community activists and voting rights groups like uh, Georgia Coalition for People's Agenda that's led by Helen Butler. Um, they said, no, 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 we're not going to let you get away with that. Um, and the Augusta Chronicle uh, wrote this. So the elections board uh, refused to provide a local minister who was leading the fight um, as in addition to members of the public and even media outlets and voting rights attorneys information about the rationale for the closures. So the elections board uh, did not want to explain their process on why they were doing these uh, closures. And then uh, they claimed that the only person that was familiar um, with the material was just too busy to respond, which is just, you know, this is insane to think about. Like, no one is buying that. Um, so what ended up happening is the board backed off and it appears that all seven precincts will, will remain open for the May primary and for election day. Now, I just want to remind you that everything you are seeing in the news right now, or all the things we're talking about on this show, they are a reminder that elections matter. Even those random judge seats where you don't know the person, that election matters too. Uh, and I want to give you a quick reminder that our, if you remember our Who Runs Atlanta series that we did last year for the uh, mayor and city council elections, we're going to revamp that and do a Who Runs Georgia series. We know it's hard to keep a track of all these folks who are running, uh, what are they running on, who are they. So we're going to bring you the Who Runs Georgia series, so stay tuned for that one. All right, moving on to national news. 
Uh, Democrats have introduced a Senate and House bill. This is in the state capitol, or excuse me, in the national and in D.C. Uh, to redistribute money from big oil companies to American consumers. This is a big one. Uh, the idea is to stop these companies from price gouging. So uh, oil barrels would be subject to a 50% tax on the difference between the current price and the average price of a barrel of a gal a barrel of oil between 2015 and 2019. Now only large, super large companies like ExxonMobil or Chevron uh, would be subject to the tax. Uh, the bill uh, under this bill, if you are a consumer, you would receive a quarterly rebate on the money raised from the tax, uh, and then they're going to do it by income. So if you make more than seventy-five thousand. You'll get one um, amount. If you're a couple who makes more than 150000 you get a different amount. So uh, a single filer would get about $240 a year. Joint filers would get $360 a year. Now, lawmakers estimate that this tax would raise $45 billion per year. So I'm all for stopping price gouging, but uh, Keith, you might uh, you might disagree with me on this, but I don't think consumer rebates are the right move here. Um, I think instead the United States should be spending the $45 billion per year to fix our crumbling infrastructure, improve and expand transit, make walking and cycling safer, Distribute those monies to the State Department of Transportation, uh, cities and counties, kind of like what they did with the COVID relief money, which we know has made a huge impact at the local level. I mean, every transit agency, every city, every state, they all have major transportation projects that are on the shelf right now because they just don't have enough money to pull it off. Uh, and I think if you really want to improve quality of life for folks, this would make more of a difference than an extra 200 and what did I say? $280 at the end of the year. And actually that's, it's not even going to be, you're not even getting $280 at one. You're getting it on a quarterly basis. So I think this would make a lot more sense. Um, you know, if you're a policy wonk, you can kind of think of this as a national annual splost, uh, which is a special local option sales tax for folks who are really nerdy like me. So, uh, the bill was just introduced. Uh, who knows if it'll go anywhere, but um, I mean, it's an interesting concept. I just, I don't think the rebate is the right approach. Is this uh, Biden's backdoor way of trying to like give people a check like Trump did, but not I was call thinking it that a stimulus too. Yeah. because he said no more stimuluses? Yeah, but I was thinking that as well. All right. Um, one, one thing on kind of oil prices. I know a lot of folks are talking about this. Uh, the White House press secretary um, was asked about oil production in the United States and the impact of the Russia-Ukraine crisis on gas prices. Take a listen to what she said. 
Uh, the, we have been clear that in the short term, supply must keep up with the demand. We're, we are, and here and around the world, will we make the shift to a secure, clear, clean energy future? We are one of the largest producers with a strong domestic oil and gas industry. We have actually produced more oil. It is at record numbers, and we will continue to produce more oil. There are 9,000 approved drilling permits that are not being used. So the suggestion that we are not allowing companies to drill is inaccurate. The suggestion that that is what is hindering or preventing gas prices to come down is inaccurate. Would President Biden rescind his executive order that halts new oil and natural gas leases on public lands? Well, 90% of them happen on private lands, as I'm sure you know, and there are 9,000 unused approved drilling permits. So I would suggest you ask the oil companies why they're not using those if there's a desire to drill more. Would President Biden ever undo his executive order that stopped the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline? Are you suggesting that would solve the gas prices issue? Well, do you think that that would maybe affect prices faster than getting the whole country off of fossil fuels? I actually don't think it would. Uh, the Keystone uh, was not an oil field. It's a pipeline. Yeah. Also, the oil is continuing to flow in just through other means. So it actually would have nothing to do with the current supply imbalance. So gas prices are approaching an all-time high per gallon. How high would they have to get before President Biden would say, I'm going to set aside my ambitious climate goals and just increase domestic oil production, get the producers to drill more here, and we can address the fossil fuel future later? Well, again, Peter, the U.S. produced more oil this past year than in President Trump's first year. Next year, according to the Department of Energy, we will produce more oil than ever than ever before those are those are the facts okay um in the same vein of rising prices and corporate greed i want to highlight a group called fight corporate monopolies they uh, released a poll with some message testing that i think it'd be smart for uh, progressive candidates to use now i don't know exactly who their poll who they polled um, but i'm going to just give you the highlight here 82 of voters agreed with this statement. 82% of voters they polled. Prices are in part rising because big corporations are jacking up prices and passing higher costs to consumers while making record profits. Elected officials must take on powerful CEOs and rein in corporate greed to lower prices. 82% of the folks they polled agreed with that statement. What's also interesting here is when they polled suburban voters who were typically seen as more conservative, they were moved uh, plus 14 points um, when they heard this statement. For decades, politicians have protected big corporations at the expense of local small businesses. Now that there are fewer small businesses in town, the big corporations that are left can charge you high prices without fear of losing your business. Inflation has given them an excuse to do just that. So that is a statement that suburban voters, um, again, were moved by and found compelling. And it's not your imagination. We've talked about inflation. I'm just going to read out a few ordinary products that you might be familiar with that have, excuse me, that since uh, from February data uh, shows how much they have increased. 
Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissue increased by 16.4%. Bird's Eye Sweet Peas, which I'm not a sweet pea fan, increased by 15.1%. Orville Redenbacher Butter Popcorn, 13.1%. Pringles, 12.7%. And for folks who have babies out there, Huggies, Little Snugglers, Diapers, 9.4%. Now, remember, inflation is at 7.5% right now. All of these items I just mentioned are above the rate of inflation today. I think uh, these these folks are onto something. Um, Rising prices, I think it's something that it should be a bipartisan conversation. Uh, because at the end of the day, the folks who are hurting are working, uh, working class, middle class Americans. And that doesn't matter if you are Republican, Democrat, Asian, Hispanic, black, white, whichever race. Now to our favorite part of the show, party poopers and party starters. Turn out the lights. The party's over. The party is over. Close the gates. What? All right. Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. So this week's party pooper is a guy you probably have never heard of unless you are a downtown Atlanta resident or uh, someone who follows urbanism Twitter. So uh, Richard Bowers, this guy owns a major commercial real estate firm. And let me kind of explain to you who he is. So last summer, three blocks of downtown Peachtree, uh, this was like by, if you know where the Ritz-Carlton downtown is, it's right by the Ritz. So it's like Peachtree and Ellis, that area. So uh, they, uh, the city converted three blocks of Peachtree into what's called a shared space. Now the idea is to make the street feel a little bit more like a plaza, like something you might see in New York or London or another major city. And this is supposed to be a three-phase test project. We are currently in phase one. Uh, if you haven't been down there, it looks really cool. Um, it's now much safer to cross uh, Peachtree and go into the Peachtree Center Mall. They've added large planters to give a little bit more space between the sidewalk and the street. Uh, they've had folks um, chalk art murals on the ground. Uh, now, the second and third phases are going to include outdoor dining, a MARTA bus shelter, public art, kind of all those things you would expect for an iconic street like Peachtree Street. So in the first 90 days of this program of doing the street over, the city said that the area saw a 27% increase in pedestrians an 11% reduction in motor vehicles, and no more than 11.1 seconds of additional travel time. Why does this matter? This is technically called a road diet, uh, which is basically a way to uh, focus more on pedestrian access and safety and deprioritize the car. So again, why this matters is because we have a car crash problem in Atlanta. 86 86 people in 2021 died on Atlanta roads. That is a 32% increase from 2020, 86 people. Um, So back to Bowers. 
So Bowers opposed this project, even though it had the support of downtown neighbors, the local hotels, and other businesses. And I don't know what happened, uh, because again, this project started last year, but Bowers went to Mayor Dickens, Andre Dickens, and said, if you don't shut this down, I'm going to go over to the state legislator and tell my Republican pit friends to draft legislation that says no more road diets will be allowed in Atlanta. And I guess he was probably just going to do a blanket road diet so it couldn't happen anywhere. Now, there was no proof of legislation. He didn't say, I already have this bill drafted. I've got somebody ready to introduce it. He just threatened that he was going to do it. Uh, now, remember I said this week is crossover week. So I would think that the city would just run out the clock on negotiation with Bowers on this and say, you know, we hear you, we're going to try to think through what to do and then get through cross crossover week so that there wasn't going to be any time to introduce legislation. But uh, the mayor caved, and and he's not the only mayor who has caved to Richard Bowers. Keisha Lance Bottoms also caved to Bowers uh, last year when he killed converting Baker Street, uh, which is in downtown Atlanta, to two lanes. He said, hey, I don't like this, and we're, I don't want you all to do it. Now, mind you, the Baker Street project and this Peachtree Street project, these weren't just one-offs that the city decided to do. This was the city planning department, city transportation department. They had numerous meetings with impacted people, including the neighbors, including the business owners, commercial property owners. This was a multi-multi-step process. So I went back and looked at the financial disclosures from last year's mayor and city council elections to see, well, how much money did Bowers dole out in the last election? And he cut more than $17,000 worth of checks. Um, even more, I think it gets up close to 18000 once you include contributions from his wife. Bowers did give to Andre, but it was only in the runoff. Um, most of the money he gave... And in fact, I think Andre was the only person he gave to that actually won their race. He gave a well, he also gave to Mary Norwood, so she won her race too. Um, so Bowers is my party pooper because, and really I should make the city the party pooper with him, because why are we okay with one business owner overruling years of public input the wishes of the neighbors and the other businesses in the district and smart urban planning. This is one guy. Um, and we're having this conversation about oligarchs, right? And how these oligarchs are able to dictate what elected officials do. This is an example of that. I'm not saying he is an oligarch, but I'm saying this is an example of some of the very things that we are talking about happening across uh, in other parts of the world. Let's get it started in here. Oh, I'm the party starter. is former Atlanta mayor, former Georgia congressman, former United States ambassador, Andrew Young. He celebrated his 90th birthday over the weekend 
um, at his birthday gala. They share they showed archival footage of him with so many civil rights leaders whose names we um, know so well, folks like Martin Luther King, John Lewis, C.T. Vivian. And it was just a reminder that we are on the cusp of living without these trailblazers. Every year we lose one, two, three of them. Um, And it was just really sweet to see uh, Andy Young's family all with him on the stage, multiple generations, right? Like great, great grandchildren, his children, uh, the entire city there uh, supporting him, even... um, Governor Brian Kemp came. So it was just just a nice, uh, just a really nice evening to see folks celebrate 90 years and to hear how much impact he made in Atlanta, in Georgia, and across the world. Very cool, very inspiring. Makes you really want to do something with your life. All right, so that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to tell your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors about where the party at. Have a good one. What could be more perfectly than to have a world party on the day you